Hey, you guys. It is November 3rd. We all know what that means if you're in the States. So uh, I want to tell you all right now, if it is Tuesday, November 3rd, you're listening to this the day it comes out, and you haven't voted yet, uh, please pause us right now and go vote. Yes. Polls should, in most states, be open until 7 p.m. As long as you're in line, they can't turn you away. We have had record-breaking early voting turnout this election, so maybe lines won't be as long. But honestly, even if they are, that's good news because it means people are getting out and voting, and that's ultimately the goal. So if you're able, go, get in that line, and stay in that line until you voted. This is so, so important. So let's all let's all do our parts and practice our freedom of voting. And if you have voted already, uh, feel free to pause us, run to the store, get a bottle of wine, uh, because we all need it. Um, or go to your fridge and open one that you already have and uh, drink with us, listen to some true crime, listen to some inspiring stories of true crime. So, Uh, Get ready, buckle in. This is going to be an episode, y'all. Yes, and before we get into that, let us tell you who we are. Um, Hi, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And sometimes we forget to introduce ourselves. And now you should buckle up because it's going to get going. Buckle up twice. You know, if you buckled up before, now it's time for that weird, like, cross buckle that goes across your... The well, X one across your titties. It's like it's a roller coaster. You you do the belt lap and then pull down the shoulder straps because there's a lot of loop de loops. You do a loop de loop and pull, and your shoes are looking cool. What? It's how you Did tie your just... shoes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize we like jumped back into the 40s or something. It was SpongeBob, I think. I don't know. Really, it could have been from the 40s. Um, it might have been, actually. Um, but yeah. But before we get into like the episode episode, let's chit-chat about Patreon for a hot sec. So, um, a lot of y'all may remember last week or so, we did a Instagram Live. And if you were a Patreon member, you would have gotten early access to a live we did just on Patreon, where we talked about uh, some of the wines we got from French Lick Winery, which, uh, fun fact, we'll be talking about the other two in this episode. Yes. And so if you were a Patreon member, you would uh, have kind of exclusive early access to that live. Also, you'll get to do awesome things like direct an episode, listen to all our murder minis. We have one we're recording right after this. It's a doozy, y'all. Um, and yeah, so if you haven't, Check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash blood and wine podcast, and look at look at joining the blood and wine family. Yes, and while you're at it, be sure you have subscribed to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify. I think you follow us on Spotify. But whatever podcast listening platform you have chosen, just make sure you're following or subscribing, and you should get notifications every time we drop a new episode on Tuesdays. Boom. I know I have started to actually listen to a couple podcasts. I know. I know. I and honestly don't anymore. Like, I don't listen to podcasts or audiobooks because I don't commute. 
See, I've started to, when I take Max on walks, now that it's not oh. a trillion degrees outside, I'll throw on one of my podcasts. Also, two of my favorite drag queens, Trixie and Katya, have a podcast, The Bald and the Beautiful. Highly recommend. So I listen to that. They do weekly episodes. And nice. I'm like, walking Max, listen to my queens. And yeah, so I subscribe to them on Apple Podcasts. And so it's like, oh, cool. Every, I think they come out on Tuesdays as well. But every Tuesday, it's like, new episode. And I'm like, I love this. I know. I I miss listening to podcasts. Maybe I need to do stuff like just put in my headphones or whatever when I'm like cleaning. Just listen to them then. I think just sit in the corner of your room with like <laughs> the lights off, one lamp dramatically lit, and a glass of wine in your hand and just staring blankly while listening to like a murder podcast. Oh, so you mean basically the exact ambiance that I have going on right now where I've got my lights off, one lamp on, and I'm in the corner where my desk is, except I happen to be talking to you, but we're making a podcast. So yeah, perfect. <laughs> That'll be what I do. Also, my yeah right there kind of sounded like a Max bark. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are spending too much time together. <laughs> I know. He, he told me that the other day. He He's said, like, you know, I really need my space. <laughs> Dad, I... We need to take some time apart. I need a break. Any listeners that are new, Max is not my child. He's my dog. <laughs> I mean, he is my baby. He is my child. But he's a dog, not a human. Uh, but I would have that, like, six-year-old who's, like, kind of, like CBS comedy TV show smart that would be like, oh, they're five, but they say funny adult things. Like, I think we need to spend some time apart. But it'd be real life, and that'd be me. And I'd be like, okay. I don't know, ask your other dad if you want to go to sleepover at Tremothy's or something. Speaking of real life, let's get into our real life topic. Okay, that's a transition, but yeah, I like it. So our topic, uh, as I kind of hinted earlier, it's one that's going to be a little more inspiring. We've had some heavy, creepy, scary episodes during October. We did our October spooktacular, never picked a name for it. Fun, fun, fun fest. Spooktacular so, Fest of Horrorville. Yeah, our Hallow- month-long Halloween special. But we're like, you know what? We're in November. It's no longer spooky month. Let's do something inspiring. Let's kick it off with a Survivor episode. Because it's been a hot minute. It has been. So today we are covering couple Survivor cases. And mine is... I think previously our craziest survivor case was the one you did in 104, Allison Botha, where she was like attacked and eviscerated. And um, I think my case this episode might be crazier than that one. So, yeah. Yeah. It's it's one that I was like, holy shit. Holy shit. I found it and was like, I have to do this case. To the point where I almost bought a month of Lifetime TV so I could, like, watch the episode (laughs) and get more into it. Because I was like, okay, what the hell? But thankfully, Brittany has Hulu TV, so I just logged in with her account. But it is uh, a lot. It is definitely one I'm going to need a drink for. Um, And I know your case is also intense. Mine has very different levels of horror than we've talked about in a while. So uh, I think, yes, this episode, our topic is survivors. It is intense survivors. 
And um, I think we all are going to need a drink for it. So I'm going to go grab my wine. Me too. Okay, so we've got our wines. Brittany, uh, what are you drinking today for this episode? Well, as you already spoiled it a little bit earlier, it's one of the French lick wines. (laughs) I did spoil it. (laughs) And also, if anyone's watched our Instagram live or the Patreon live, you know what we're going to do because we showed them to you. But this is, is there a year on this? I don't think so. Yeah. So this is the French Lick Winery Heaven's View Vidal Blanc from Martin County, Indiana. And I'm really looking forward to this one. It is a white wine and I have never had a Vidal Blanc grape before. And this is 100% Vidal Blanc grapes. And they are, like I said, like made, made. I mean, yes, made but they are grown, grown? <laughs> they are grown in indiana um like process like everything is done there and like we mentioned again on that instagram live just a little bit about french lake winery so they sent us some wines to try we split their um rosé which that one's awesome you can hear all about it if you go watch that instagram but they were founded in 1995 and it's the dotty family And they really wanted to create wines from premium grapes and really coax out the best qualities of those. So this wine in particular is a dry white wine. And all of these bottles actually have a scale on the side from dry to sweet, which is one of my favorite things when a wine has it, because sometimes it can be hard in a description unless it literally says sweet to know what you're going to get until you've had a lot of wines, you know, like those like key words. But Mm -hmm. this one is pretty much all the way on the dry side. So I'm really interested to see like how... How, how this one tastes. There should be no sweetness whatsoever, but it's got bright fruit flavors and a very tart finish. So I'm thinking mm-hmm. similar to a Pinot Grigio, maybe. It's bright, crisp, and fruity, tropical fruits with citrus notes, medium-high acidity, and it also pairs really well with lighter foods, such as salads, light pasta dishes, seafood and vegetable dishes, or something spicy like Thai, Indian, and curry, or um, Tyler's pad Thai that he made for me this weekend. That was <laughs> top notch. I that had it for lunch today. Pad thai. Oh, I'm so I mad I didn't it... bring any leftovers with that home with me. Yes, I had it for multiple days in a row. It was so good. Mm. All right, but I'm going to go ahead and get into this wine, and it has this beautiful pool tab on the foil that all wines should have. Telling you. Should. I love it. Because again, I don't slice up my fingers on the foil, but I do slice up my fingers on everything else. So I'm glad I don't have to risk it and find out if I cut my fingers on foil because boom, pull tab. Remember when I was opening a bottle of wine the other weekend and I cracked the glass? Yes. Remember <laughs> how I had the idea to get the little like filter in when you aerate that catches all the the goodies and bits that what is it particulates i mean yes but what's the word for the shit in bottles of wine that's like dart sediment sediment (laughs) particulates (laughs) you just sprayed (laughs) wine everywhere (laughs) the bottom of the cork broke off in in the bottle one moment while Brittany recovers. <laughs> All right, and we are back. 
listeners, I have cleaned up the wine, but uh, if you are wondering, this was definitely sealed very well, and that piece of cork is not coming out. Like, that's it's so like funny. It's like a slice of the bottom cork. Like, if you were to do a DIY with a cork and being like, oh, like those furniture scooters that you put under your under the legs of your tables doesn't scratch the floor. It's a slice, like a perfect... Air pressure is crazy. Yeah, air pressure is really crazy. But, um, okay, well, the wine is fine. The bottle is fine. I didn't break the bottle this time, just the cork. So there you go. Maybe I should yeah. not break something next time I open a bottle of wine. Let's see. It's kind of like a ship in a bottle, but it's a cork. <laughs> it's so interesting. Okay. Oh, that looks good. Well, I will say when the wine got all over me, I could smell how dry it was. And thankfully, I didn't lose too much of it. So it's not a tragedy. The wine got all over you. You act like a full glass got out. <laughs> it, it was just a mini geyser. <laughs> but, you, but you saw the geyser. I did. Um, it was a gleek of wine. It definitely smells like tropical fruits. I'm getting some melon, some papaya. But it also has that citrus in it. Hmm. So it is definitely giving me Pinot Grigio vibes. And also a little bit of Viognier vibes with like a very subtle hint of vanilla behind Mm. the nose. So in your brain. In your sinus. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, I'm looking forward to trying this wine. It, you know, took some work to get into it. But Tyler, before I try the Vidal Blanc, tell me about your French Lick wine. So I'm drinking the French Lick Noiré. And thankfully on their website, because I was like, is it Norier? What is it? It's Noiré. They included a pronunciation. Also, it's French Lick Winery. So I should have obviously been like, oh, how would a French person sound it? Pronounce it. Noiré. But it is a an excellent medium body dry red wine, with soft tannins, a distinctive black pepper character, and then fruity notes of blackberry and raspberry. So I'm almost getting kind of like a medium... Zinfandel, but drier vibes. Ooh, that sounds good. The tasting notes are that it is fruit-forward and light-bodied to medium-bodied, prominent red fruit aromas and flavors, secondary rich dark fruit character, and peppery with a lively acidity. It's a very easy-drinking dry red and best served at room temp. It uh, goes very well with beef, roasted or braised chicken, roasted duck, mushrooms, and salmon, or roasted pork loin, veal, or lamb. I'm like kind of wishing I had just a nice platter of dinner right here with it because it sounds amazing. Um, and it is 100% Noiré grapes. Uh, 50% of them are grown at their Heaven's View Vineyard in Martin County, Indiana, and 50% from New York State. So I'm excited. I've never heard of a Noiré grape before. Yeah, I love that we're both getting to try some new grapes this episode. New varietals. Yeah. Let's see if I can more successfully get my cork out. And I did. You got it. Ooh. That's a really pretty red. That's Mm -hmm. dark. I'm definitely getting like a raspberry nose. You know, when it's cold outside, you get a raspberry nose. No. I literally um, was like, that was weird. Just <laughs> it's, it's nice and fruity. And from reading the description, I'm imagining it's like 
if a Pinot Noir for Halloween dressed up as a Zinfandel. That's, that's the vibe I'm getting, so I'm excited to see if that's correct or completely off base. Dressed up as a Zinfandel or had a baby with a Zinfandel? I guess had a baby, but you know when you see pictures of Corgi mixes, how it literally looks like whatever the mix is, a Corgi in a costume of that dog? It really does. <laughs> that's I'm imagining that, but Pinot Noir is the Corgi and Zinfandel is the costume. Dalmatian. All right. Well, I think it's time to try these wines. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. And thank you. Cheers to French Lick Winery. Yes. Thank you guys so much. That's good, dude. Oh, for an easy drinking red, that packs a lot of flavor. But I'm going to tell you about mine first, like I said, because dude, this is amazing. Okay, yeah, tell me. It's definitely a dry white wine. I'm getting those notes of like lemon rind, minerals. It definitely has that tart finish, which is what I feel like I'm getting when I say lemon rinds. Um, Mm. There is no sweetness to this wine at all. This is a really nice white table wine when you just want something light with zero sweetness. You're like, no, I want dry. I want to feel the dryness in my mouth like I'm in the desert. Can you feel the dry tonight? Just like, you know, desert mouth. No, just kidding. That's called the morning after you have wine. (laughs) Oh, my God. But no, I really highly recommend this one. This is a great, easy-drinking white wine for someone like me who is just not about the sweetness, I'm all about this, and French Lick, absolutely, they they knew what they were doing when they sent this to us. Yes, they absolutely did. Man, it is, I'm going to drink this way too fast. So tell me about yours now. This wine's actually really hard to describe. I can see how it's easy drinking, it's very smooth, and the first taste when it hits your mouth is kind of, um, it's that light-bodied. Uh, like a Pinot Noir, but about one second later, it kind of pows the middle of your tongue as you swallow, and with so much flavor, so many of those berries, definitely black pepper, um, just a really, like, almost concentrated fruit, but it's not like a Zinfandel. I don't really know how to, I don't think I've ever had a wine like this, because it's almost like it is both light-bodied and medium-bodied. Well, it's just the, yeah, the difference in the moment, the beginning of the... (laughs) It's the difference in the moment. And right now, this moment under the stars is right where I know I belong. (laughs) It's fine. I just want to be in a high school angsty teen movie. No, (laughs) what I'm trying to say is it, it has both depending on at what point in the sip you're in, the beginning, middle, or the end. <laughs> yeah. No, I know what you're feeding. It was just a weird way of saying it. <laughs> this wine, she is the moment. I'm just feeling it. I like this. As far as easy drinking, I see I see where French Lick is coming from and agree in that, like, yeah, this bottle's going to be no problem to finish and I don't need it with food, but I feel like easy drinking wines i usually think are ones that 
having them with food might take away a little more. So it's easy drinking because you kind of would rather have it alone. This one is great alone, but I feel like with food would be also amazing. So I'm thinking like a nice rosemary pork loin. Y'all, this is amazing. And if you are in the Southern Indiana area or you're like, I'm going to take a, I want to take a trip to a winery. French Lick is open during COVID. They are doing all of the necessary COVID precautions and social distancing. They are open so you can go to the winery, check them out. You can also, if you're in the States, order the wines online um, on their website, frenchlickwinery.com. You can go through their wines and they have a list of states they'll ship to. So definitely check it out. If you're a fan of like a good, solid, dry, medium red Absolutely, absolutely recommend the Noir, eh? You know, and their wines, another thing I wanted to add, because we didn't talk about price, they're in that like 10 to $20 range. So it's the same range that generally all the wines that we talk to you guys about are in. So totally right up our alley. But Tyler, I will say, I really wish we could try each other's because both of them sound like ones that we would both really love. And we didn't get around to splitting all of the bottles when we were together a couple of weeks ago. We just shared the rosé. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm super tempted to place an order. That's what I was thinking. I was like, I might just head over to their website and get myself a bottle of the Vidal Blanc. I definitely think you'd love it. And that red sounds like I'd love it, too. Oh, 100%. But once again, French Lake, thank you so much for your generosity. We really enjoy trying your wines. And if we are ever in Indiana, we're going to come visit your winery. Absolutely. Well, now that we have our wine, we have our topic. Brittany, what is your intense survival case? Today, I'm going to be telling you guys about Debbie Bagerie and Ian Manuel. And I'm sorry if I'm saying Debbie's name incorrectly. I could not find any audio of how to pronounce that last name. It's B-A-I-G-R-I-E, Bajiri. But it might be Bajiri. So I did just want to say that. So throughout the case, I'm going to be calling her Debbie. I mean, it's her name. But the sources I used... This first one, I want to spend a little bit of time talking to you guys about it because it's the book Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and Redemption by Brian Stevenson. And we have talked about Brian Stevenson before. He is the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative there in Montgomery, Alabama. And they started this back in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. I can't remember the exact year. And EJI is an organization that's dedicated to defending the poor, the incarcerated, and the wrongly condemned. So this book dives into people who are wrongfully on death row, death row in general, children who are sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, systemic racism. It it just dives into so many things. This is easily one of the most disturbing books I've ever read. And then that's not because it's this thriller or this horror. It's because this is something that's happening today in our daily lives in our country. So I think I've said this before, but I really think everyone should read this book. So I used the book as one of my sources. I also used the Equal Justice Initiative website. There are a few articles on that page. An article on Upworthy by Allie Hirschlag. 
and an article on Today by Yoon Kyung Kim. So in July 1990, Ian Manuel and two other boys attempted to rob a couple who were out to dinner in Tampa, Florida with friends. They walked around and they found who who they were going to rob. And it happened to be Debbie Bashery. And she was out with friends for the first time since having her second child. At the time, Ian was 13 years old. And when Debbie tried to resist and fought back, Ian pulled a gun and told her to give it up. Again, they're trying to rob her. They're trying to get money. And then he started shooting. It possibly could have been completely by accident. And one of the bullets went into Debbie's mouth and out her jaw. Oh, fuck. It blew out all of the bottom teeth and the gums on the lower left side of her mouth, knocked out her front tooth, and ripped apart her tongue. But Debbie was still alive. She felt this awful pain shoot through her face, and she saw one of her teeth fall to the ground. The boys saw what happened, and all three of them were just terrified and ran off. And Debbie was able to go back to, like, the restaurant where she had just eaten dinner to get help. So I guess she was leaving is when they approached her. Oh, my God. Ian was arrested just a few days later after riding in a stolen car. So a completely unrelated incident. While he was in custody, though, he confessed to being the gunman who wounded Debbie. All three of the boys were arrested and charged with armed robbery and attempted murder. But Debbie didn't learn that her shooter was only 13 until she read about his arrest in the paper. And, you know, she, I I read an article and she was saying how she was shocked because that's a child. A child wouldn't do this. But Ian was, in fact, 13. Wow. So when he went to trial, when they went to court, Ian had an appointed lawyer And his lawyer and his mom, they advised him to plead guilty, saying that the judge would be light on him. He'd probably get like 15 years. But what the lawyer did not realize is that these two charges against Ian were punishable with sentences of of life imprisonment without the possibility for parole. And that's exactly how Ian was sentenced when he accepted responsibility and pled guilty. At 13? Life without parole? Yeah. At 13. He was charged as an adult because the judge was determined to make an example of him. And because of this, Ian became one of the youngest children condemned to die in prison in the United States. Ian's really harsh punishment was partially in part to Ian living on the streets, not having good parental supervision, and other minor offenses that he had been convicted of, such as shoplifting and property crimes. So when the the judge was saying he wants to make an example of Ian, he's thinking about all of these things. The way he was raised, this, you know, I want to make an example of you. I.e., Ian was already seen as a threat, as one of those kids you got to keep an eye on. See, the whole make an example of him, I'm like, I don't understand because are are other kids who could do similar crimes going to be what? Like keeping up with the court transcripts and watching the news and stuff? Is there other kids who have poor parental supervision, have been caught shoplifting and stuff and are getting into more violent stuff, going to see that on the news and be like, you know what? Yeah, 
that that is too harsh of a sentence. I am going to turn my life around and be better at school. Like how many how many times have you ever actually heard stories of people that were formerly involved in criminal activity be like and I what saw it around, on TV. Yep, saw on the news of someone I was like, "You know what? That's that's it." No. That doesn't work. Yeah. And Ian grew up in one of the worst project areas in Florida, in this Tampa area, and his family essentially had neglected him at this point in time. So he really had almost no parental supervision. Oh yeah, and he was a 13-year-old black kid. Ian was sent, like I said, to the adult prison, and he went to Appalachie Correctional Institution, which was one of the toughest prisons in Florida. Since Ian was 13 years old and small for his age, none of the uniforms fit him. So the staff ended up just cutting like six inches off the legs and arms of one of the uniforms and gave it to him. And that's what he wore. How are things like that not telling enough so much that the judge is like, no, this is a mistake? Like the visual representation of this child is too small that none of the uniforms fit them. How is that not a powerful enough image for you to be like, okay, no, no, I fucked up. I mean, also, how in the first place can you condemn a child, a 13-year-old, a fucking eighth grader, to life in prison without possibility of parole? Believe it or not, a lot of kids are being convicted that way. A lot. I will go into more details about that. Juveniles that are housed in adult prisons are five times more likely to be victims of sexual assault. And because of this, the staff decided that Ian wouldn't be safe with the general prison population. He was also really small for his age. So they placed him in solitary confinement for his protection. They placed him in solitary? Yeah. Solitary confinement meant staying in a small, closet-sized concrete box. Meals were given to you, like, through a slit in, in the door. If you acted out in any way, you know, if you talked back to an officer, if you were shouting, if you hurt yourself, if you refused to eat, if you complained, your time in solitary was extended. And sometimes they would even take away your mattress and you would have to sleep on the concrete floor. Solitary is inhumane torture. It is. Completely. There is no ever, never any good reason for solitary confinement. It is damaging. It is torture. Yeah. The only times you're out of your cell, Ian got three showers a week and 45 minutes of exercise in a small caged area a few times a week. But other than that, and and even during those times, he had no contact with any humans. He was completely alone. And because of this, like you were saying, it is so damaging psychologically. You know, his mental health unraveled. He became a cutter. And each time he hurt himself, his time in solitary confinement was extended. Ian ended up spending 18 years uninterrupted in solitary confinement. That is from the age of 13 until 31, if you need another perspective to look at how long 18 years is. He spent more time in, in, he spent a lot more time in solitary confinement than he'd even been alive. Yes. And so, listeners, I know you're listening and maybe you're a little confused about who I'm, like, what case is Brittany doing? Don't worry. 
Debbie is not out of the picture. Debbie comes back. Ian received one phone call a month. And on his second Christmas Eve in prison in 1992, Ian had been thinking about reaching out to Debbie and he finally decided to do it. He used his phone call. He called her and she actually answered. He wanted to apologize to her and express his regret and remorse for what he had done. And he said, you know, Merry Christmas, and I'm sorry I shot you. Because again, what do, what do you say to someone that you shot in the face? Yeah, what do you say to someone whose life you permanently damaged forever? Debbie, at this time, it had only been, you know, a year and a half, a couple years since, or I think it was like a year and a half or so since this had happened. So she was still in, in the beginning of her recovery stage. I mean, she would later undergo like 10 years of reconstructive surgery to have her jaw rebuilt. But since the the shooting, she had become a bodybuilder and she started a fitness magazine for women. And when she got this call from Ian, she was really moved and she was really surprised that he reached out. And Ian asked her if he could continue this conversation by writing her letters and she said yes. And so they ended up having a pretty regular correspondence. Wow. She's amazing. Debbie's amazing. And when you think of this from from Ian's perspective, Debbie became the only person that encouraged him to stay strong. He had been neglected, like I said, by his family. His mother passed away while he was in prison. He didn't meet any other prisoners. He had no human contact with anyone but Debbie. He wrote her letters and... And she was really impressed by his writing abilities. And they seemed to far exceed those of a 13-year-old with a rough background such as his. And he, again, because she was the only person that he had, he sent her report cards from the courses he was taking while in prison. And he wanted to show her how well he was doing. And so she was the one that was encouraging him, you know, telling him to keep improving himself despite his circumstances. Again, a lot of this being in solitary confinement. Wow. And she... Wow, sorry. I don't know, just the image of him sending her report cards because... Because he has no one else. He has no one else. She's his surrogate mom, and she's the one he shot. Exactly. I I am blown away. She is incredible because it. Yeah. no one could blame her if... She held anger and resentment and fury towards him because of what he did to her and what she had to go through. Yeah. And yet she is encouraging him and being one of the only... She is one of the people who would be fully expected not to be on his side and yet is one of the only people who is on his side. Yeah. They, I mean, they corresponded for literally like 15 years plus, and it's definitely plus, and you'll, you'll hear what I mean when I continue with this, but her level of forgiveness is something that is kind of unheard of, because people forgive, but this is a different level of that. Yeah, this is, this is more than forgiveness. Yeah. And she even said she didn't remember a time actually saying, like, I forgive you. It just, it just happened. They just kept corresponding. And 
So like I said, even though Ian was in solitary confinement, he was able to educate himself and he read hundreds of books and he wrote poetry and he had such a way with words. And if you haven't teared up yet, you will after I read you this poem, because this is one that was in Just Mercy. And when you understand his background and and he wrote this while in solitary confinement, yeah, just listen. So this poem is called Uncried Tears. Imagine teardrops left uncried from pain trapped inside, waiting to escape through the windows of your eyes. Why won't you let us out? The tears question the conscience. Relinquish your fears and doubts and heal yourself in the process. The conscience told the tears, I know you really want me to cry, but if I release you from bondage and gaining your freedom, you die. The tears gave it some thought before giving the conscience an answer. If crying brings you triumph, then dying's not such a disaster. And I don't think I've ever seen a poem so hauntingly beautiful and disturbing and sad and heartbreaking. Because again, you can see so much into that because of his situation. I mean, that last line, if crying brings you triumph, then dying's not such a disaster. Please. That tears me up. And I know this is not a book podcast, but you guys know I love giving you my book recommendations. And I've fallen so in love with this book and I think everyone should read it. But so Ian has done so well for himself. He's reached out to the woman who he harmed They've been able to build a relationship that is based around forgiveness and strength. And so after they had been communicating for several years, so like about 15 years, through all the letters and the calls, Debbie wrote to the judge who sentenced Ian, stating that his sentence was too harsh and his conditions of confinement were inhumane. She talked to prison officials. She gave interviews. She really wanted to bring attention and light to Ian's Ian's life and what's going on, what his story is. But the courts are completely ignoring her. Also, because of laws preventing victims from visiting inmates, the two of them never met in person. So this relationship is through phone and letters, mostly letters, because he didn't, you know, one phone call a month. Yeah, I, I can fully understand why there are laws of victims not being able to in person meet their attackers but wow yeah but through all of their correspondence debbie learned more about ian's case and eventually i'm about to get into details of this but she started attending his court hearings and they would share an occasional wave you know it was the first time they were actually able to see each other since the incident The Equal Justice Initiative took Ian's case in 2006. They argued that it was cruel and unusual punishment to sentence a 13-year-old to die in prison. Yeah. I mean, anyone who Mm -hmm. disagrees with that, I don't know how to have a conversation with you. Yeah, he's 13. He's an 8th grader. Literally, I, I think about... I mean, just think about the emotional and the intellectual development of your brain. And, like, science... It is not there. You're not an adult. You don't have the ability to make decisions. He has barely started puberty. He does not have the mental wherewithal 
to understand the consequences, understand what was happening, and therefore in no way should be in prison life without parole. Right. Well, and you also have to think about peer pressure. Think about the shit that we did as kids because of peer pressure. These older teenage boys gave him a gun and told him to be a part of their robbery. And he did. Like, you're 13. How do you say no? Yeah. And it's like, yes, we never shot anyone under peer pressure. But we also did not grow up in any kind of situation remotely similar to his. We didn't grow up with, when you're a child, having to make adult decisions about your own safety and protection, about having to decide and understand that you're not going to get the protection from your parents or your community. You kind of have to do that on your own and through the people you find on your own. So... With that, the peer pressure is going to be even more because it's not just basically it's not just these older friends he's trying to impress. It's also his chosen family, his protectorate. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is a lot of people in Debbie's life had a really hard time understanding her level of forgiveness and her relationship with Ian because they they literally were like, what are you doing? This is the kid that shot you. And she's like, yeah, and he's accepted responsibility. And I'm not saying he's not responsible for what he did. He is, but he was 13. It doesn't mean he shouldn't be forgiven. It doesn't mean, you know, he should be, you shouldn't give up on him. And like I said, she was the only one in his corner. And the forgiveness she gives and how she copes with what happened to her and moves on and grows from it is not anyone else's to decide how it should happen the appropriate way. Totally. So, EJI got involved in 2006. So Ian had more people in his corner. While his case was pending on appeal, the Supreme Court decided in Graham v. Florida, for most offenses, children cannot be sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. This was an initiative that EJI was really, really pushing and fighting for. And so this... Supreme Court case not only was going to help Ian's case, but a lot of other children that had been convicted of life without parole that they were working on. But the state of Florida argued that Graham applies only to non-homicide cases and not cases like Ian's because attempted murder is not non-homicide, even though no one's killed. But on October 29th, 2010... EJI won a a unanimous ruling from a Florida court of appeal, which concluded that juveniles convicted of attempted murder cannot be sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. The Florida appeals court rejected that state's argument holding that, and I love this quote, simple logic dictates that attempted murder is a non-homicide offense because death, by definition, has not occurred. That's kind of what I was thinking when they were saying non-homicide. I was like, okay, well, Debbie didn't die, so it's not homicide because she's alive. Yeah. And I read in a couple of sources, a lot of sources just said like that he shot her. One said an accidental shot. It it kept, kept flipping back and forth. 
we didn't really dive into that like in a lot of these cases because when it came down to it, the stronger case is not did he mean to shoot or not to shoot. It is he's 13 and they convicted him to life in prison without parole. So, I mean, that's why if if you're wondering why I didn't dive into that more, it's because that's not what the argument really was. I mean, yeah. Well, I feel like the initial case, the argument of did he need did he mean to shoot or not is important. But I guess since he did a plea deal, exactly, there was no trial involved. No. Yeah. So he was misinformed by his lawyer. He wasn't aware of the laws. His lawyer thought him pleading guilty meant he'd get a short sentence, like 15 years. And again, you have to assume this was an appointed lawyer. I'm sure this is a public defense attorney. Like he has a caseload out the ass. I'm sure. Although in his state, he should probably know the law. So, well, and I'm also sure because the judge specifically is like, I'm going to make an example out of this one. He might have been going off the assumption of previous cases he's worked and his colleagues have worked are that, you know, if you do plead guilty and avoid a trial, you are going to get a more lenient sentence. I mean, we see that in most cases where someone pleads or takes a plea deal, but wow. Yeah. So the court concluded that the decision in Graham versus Florida that, you know, it was forbidden to sentence a juvenile to life without parole, it applied to Ian Manuel, and it required them to vacate his life without parole sentence. The state appealed this decision to the U.S. Supreme Court, but the court denied the state's request for review. I really hope they looked at it and were like, dude, fuck no. Yeah. Like, they had made their decision. So Ian's death in prison sentence was vacated, and he was resentenced. So that was 2010. And we have talked about how long some of this stuff takes. Because Ian was released from prison on November 11th, 2016, after 26 years in prison. He was 39 years old. They released him, and it was like time served. And 18 years of that was in solitary. But the thing, like the big point of that is straight 18 years, no breaks, none. It wasn't even like, and for a month he went into the cell and then did something and then went back. It was like 18 straight years. I just, 18 years with no human contact. I, I cannot imagine that reality and how, how anyone can survive that. And how anyone can condemn another person to that. I will never understand solitary confinement. So when Ian was released, he was headed to Alabama to join an EJI program that they had put together that helps former child inmates adapt to life outside of prison. Because that's another really big part of this. Ian and many children like him literally experienced their young adult life like their childhood and their young adult life behind bars they don't know how to write a check they don't know how to like just all of these things and maybe ian did know that because he was able to get an education but that is not the case for everyone so eji does have a program that you know they want to help these people they want to help these children assimilate to life outside of prison And um, Ian actually ended up getting a job and working with EJI. But before they got to Alabama, as soon as he was released, 
They met Debbie at a gas station parking lot. She had driven up to, you know, she couldn't be at the prison again because of all the laws. She couldn't be there for his release. And so they met at a gas station. And she said at this point in time, she was 54. And she said, Ian and I got out of the cars and we hugged for two minutes. It was like a long lost reunion. It was so nice. They ended up going to a pizza joint in downtown Tampa, just a few blocks from 26 years prior where the shooting had happened. And as they're eating dinner together, and that's another like, that's a, that's a big thing because for 26 years, Ian has not had a decent meal. Yeah. But also I'm just stuck on the juxtaposition and just how, I don't know, weighty heavy it is i don't know someone with a more literary mind can can follow where i'm getting but of how 26 years ago she was leaving a dinner with friends and was shot by him and today just a few blocks away she's having dinner with a friend who is the boy who shot her i know that's so powerful and she debbie oh my god so when they were at dinner they they chatted about his future plans. I mean, he now had the ability to make plans. The the things we take for granted are crazy. Um, yeah. You know, they talked about her daughters. They were one in three when the incident happened. And he, she was now showing him pictures of her granddaughter and her dogs. And they took photos together. And, you know, really the impact of Debbie's support for Ian over the years, it's hard to quantify. Um, And one of the EJI attorneys, Ben Schaefer said, what does it mean to a traumatized kid racked with guilt and stuck in solitary confinement to have the person he hurt recognize his humanity? Ian would not be where he is today without her. That, yes, his humanity. That is what she saw. And that is what she never lost sight of. And she said she hopes for a friendship with him and she wants to help others, inspire others to forgive. And she said, we all make mistakes. We all try our best and life is so short. And if anybody knows how your life can be gone in one minute, it's me. I understand that we have to forgive because it helps us heal. And so that's my case about Debbie Bashery and her survival and how she saved Ian Manuel. Yeah, she did. She saved him. I don't really have words. I don't either. I absolutely cried more than once when I was doing my research and obviously multiple times throughout this book because Ian's case is just one example. This story just spoke to me so much because it it really was about survival on both ends. And we've never really gone there with a survivor case. And so like the, the relationship that Debbie and Ian built is so unique. I wanted to share their story. I wanted to share the story of these two people who literally should be the worst of enemies and yet became there for one another. And he said that she was like a second mother and my mind is also blown at how well he is doing because shit, yeah. he lasted 18 years in solitary confinement. 
none of this is fair or okay or logical. Well, and one of the things, like, I know there's the life isn't fair, but I'm sorry, our judicial system should be fair. See, that's the thing that bothers me when people are like, well, life isn't fair. And I'm like, well, then shouldn't we be making every attempt we can to make it so? To push it to as fair as possible? Because, yeah, it isn't. There's a lot of ground to make up. Shouldn't we be trying to make up that ground and not just being like, well, shit. Like, what the fuck is that? Yeah. Life's not fair. Yeah, we're all fully aware of it. Why don't we fucking do something about it? Exactly. Well, there is my bombshell of a of a case to start out this episode, and I know that you have a lot more coming, so let's have it. Tyler, tell us about your survival story. So the case I'm doing today is the survival of Tika Adams, and the sources I used an article from Thought Catalog by Kendra Seardahl. A Wikipedia page that I'm not going to tell you the name of because I feel like it'll give too much away. And then an episode of I Survived, Season 3, Episode 26. So, in December of 2009, Tika, she is homeless and living on the streets of Washington, D.C. She'd gone through some rough spots in her life and some bad situations. And she was like, you know what? No. I am going to do everything I can. I'm going to work my ass off. I need to get my life back. I need to get everything back together. Because she'd done some stupid things. She's like, you know, yeah, I was like irresponsible and dumb and a child. And I kind of, I kind of fucked myself. And so, no, I'm a grown ass adult. I need to get my shit together. So she moved into a shelter to start her new life, to get her steps moving, her steps forward to being who she wanted to be. At the shelter, she met a guy named PJ. They fell in love, and pretty soon they got married. A little bit later, she's now seven and a half months pregnant, and she starts getting these calls from an unknown number, a number she does not recognize. And at first, she's not answering. She's like, no, I'm good. But then she's like, okay, I need to see, like, who this is, who this caller is. And it's this woman who seems really nice. She tells Tika that she works for a program that helps pregnant women in need. And she's like, oh, okay. Someone at the shelter, like, gave y'all my number. Oh, shit. (laughs) Wish I'd answered the first time you called. I'm so glad you kept calling and kept at it. Um, The woman tells Tika they have clothes. They have a storage area where they keep the clothes. They have, like, car seats, basically. Everything that a pregnant mother would need to have her baby and be able to start that. And Tika's like, oh my god, I don't I don't have any of that stuff. I don't have a car seat or baby clothes or bottles or any of this stuff. This is this is amazing. The woman tells Tika she can come and pick out whatever she wants. And Tika's like, Yes, I've been working my ass off to better my life. This is the break I needed. She's finally like, getting some help, gonna... some more help. Yeah, exactly. But PJ, on the other hand, he's he's kind of concerned. He's like, we don't know this person. We've never heard of this organization, this program she works for. And he tells Tika, don't rush into anything you don't really know about. And she's like, dude, it's fine. Like, the, these programs exist. Like... 
there's a lot out there for like pregnant women who need help like calm down like what else how else do you think they'd reach me if i don't know them i'm not gonna know them before kind of thing i mean okay i get his hesitation especially nowadays it's hard to know who to trust and oh god this is gonna sound horrible but when someone reaches out and they're super generous a lot of the times our first instinct is like i don't know what's the catch what's the catch who are you why do you want to do this for me and i mean that's really unfortunate that sucks but that's a natural reaction i mean think of the case you just did last episode i know so yeah i get it but tika is like dude chill the fuck out yourself basically so she meets with this woman outside the shelter and the woman tells her like oh i'm stephanie and at this point tika is nine months pregnant she's just a few days away from her due date and she is really needing some clothes and equipment for the baby like she still doesn't have everything she needs and stephanie she's about 35 she's again super nice and tika gets in her car uh, to go over to the storage place to pick up the clothes and everything and they just start chatting like they're old friends Tika is telling her about her life, how her pregnancy is going, how she just got married, and just how happy she was. She'd been working her ass off to get her life back together, and it was. She was doing it. She was succeeding in working her ass off to claw her way back to the life she wanted. She was doing it. Stephanie then takes Tika to her apartment and invites her into one of the bedrooms that's kind of empty, uh, to wait and to get comfortable while she kind of handles everything. And Tika's like, okay. So she sits down, gets comfortable. Um, and then Stephanie puts on a movie for her to watch. That's weird. Yeah. Um, Tika didn't mention like any kind of, it was weird going to her house and not a storage place or whatever. And then just like sit now watch the movie. But I thought it was weird listening to her say this. So I'm like, Okay, but again, she's also someone who was living on the streets, is now in a shelter. So, like, this level of, like, personal care and touch might be just as weird as her taking her to a storage facility to get the clothes. So, I can, you know, I I could see how, if you're in the mindset of, it not being weird for her to pick you up and take you to get these stuff, then her bringing you to her house instead might not also trigger any kind of, like, red flags going up. Or it might totally, and she didn't say that. I don't know. I just see so many red flags, and I'm really scared right now. Well, red flags just look like flags when you're wearing rose-colored glasses. They look pink, but okay. They just look like every other flag. (laughs) I don't know where I heard that from, but, and I think it was in, like, a comedy thing, but that hit me so hard. The Just the idea of, like, yeah, red flags just look like every other kind of flag when you're wearing rose-colored glasses. It's so real. We need to all take off our rose-colored glasses. We just need to put on our prescription lenses and see the world for what it is. <laughs> Get a prescription. We all need one. Boom! Put in those contacts. Anyway, we're not talking about that. We're talking about Tika and how she is in this room that is basically unfurnished except for 
I think she's like sitting on a futon watching a TV and she's like, cool. And at this point, PJ calls Tika and he asks where she is. And she's like, dude, I'm fine. She also doesn't know where she is. But she's like, dude, everything is fine. Like, calm your shit. Because he's worried about her. He's like, I don't like that you went over there with this, like, strange woman. Why didn't he go with her? I'm not sure. I really, they never mentioned why he didn't go with her. Well, it's like, I feel like there has to be a reason because he's been very concerned through this whole thing. And it, it seems like she was just like, no, I mean, I got this and was doing her own thing. I mean, he might have been like at work or something. Yeah. And not able to leave. And I can understand why she wouldn't have been able to get one of the workers or volunteers who also works at the shelter um, that they live at to like go with her stuff. But yeah, it, it, I'm like, oh, you went alone. But again, someone she used to live on the streets, be homeless and had to do everything and survive on her own. So again, maybe that's that's not something that's as concerning to her at this point. Because she used to have to do everything on her own. Right. Why is getting in a car with this woman who's part of the program to help her any different? That's a really good point. So after the call, Stephanie comes back in, sits down with Tika, and they're watching a movie and just chatting. And also, throughout this episode... Tika is one of those people who is able to just have humor about her experience and talk about different things. And it just, it blew my mind because like at at this point she was talking about it. She was like, yeah, we were watching Precious. And I was like, well, that's certainly a movie we can watch. This is a lot. And I'm just like, Tika, what the fuck? Like just for her to be able to have those kind of humorous comments And knowing what's about to happen and stuff. It just, yeah. She's one of those people that I feel like would be described as just like so alive. You know? Yeah. She's able to look at what I'm about to assume is the worst moment, like the precursor to the worst moment of her life and be casual about it. Yeah. So while they're watching the movie, chatting... Stephanie suddenly throws a heavy quilt over Tika and starts beating her in the head with a metal object. Okay, that took a fast turn. That took a quick turn. She hits her about like 10 times or so. And then Tika jumps up. She like throws her hands up to like throw the quilt off and like protect herself. And all she can see is blood. Like it is running down her face into both her eyes That's all she can see. She runs out of the bedroom and she gets to the front door, but the door has the bolt lock, the chain lock, and the bottom lock on it. Shit. So she doesn't have enough time to get out. And at this point, the woman jumps on Tika's back and wrestles her to the ground. She is like trying to choke Tika. Tika is fighting for her life at this point. And then she grabs a heavy fireplace poker, and she just starts beating Tika. And she hits her over 40 times. That takes some fucking time. Oh, my God. Yeah. Also, remember, Tika's a nine months pregnant. Yeah. Tika, after being hit, passes out. 
But just a couple minutes later, she was at least semi-conscious at this point. The woman grabs Tika by the heels, and or like the ankles, and starts dragging her down the hall into the kitchen. And then she leans over Tika with a box cutter. Oh my god. The woman starts cutting into Tika's stomach with the box cutter, trying to cut out her baby. Why do people do this? Why is this something that we have talked about and read about and more than once? Like, why should there be more than one of these? Yeah. The Wikipedia page, by the way, I used a source, was fetal abduction page. And there's a list, a long list, of cases. So blood is pouring from Tika's stomach. And the woman just grabs a bunch of towels and she like starts to clean up. Like Tika's laying there with this open wound bleeding and she can't really see the woman, but she can just hear her scrubbing. And she's laying on the floor and she's like, um, bitch, can you, you just cut me open. Maybe it's not the time for you to like do some spring cleaning right now. Right. What is she doing? Be- I mean, I, gosh, she, this is she's cleaning up the blood, but but it's like if you're sorry, I'm I'm just gonna say this: if you're trying to steal the baby, isn't isn't more blood coming? Like what what the fuck is she doing? It's it's almost like I don't know. The vibes I got were like that she wasn't necessarily making these kind of connections. I don't know, but she. I guess quit scrubbing and she goes over to Tika and she's like, Hey Tika, can can you get up? And Tika's like, I, I can't. I'm in so much pain. I, I don't think I can move. And the woman's like, okay, I'm going to help you. And so she picks Tika up and carries her into her bedroom and places her on a mattress on the floor. Wait, has she completely cut her open and taken the baby yet? Or No, she's just like she's gashed just open her abdomen. Yeah. Oh my god. And then so this part I'm not a hundred percent sure of the timeline or how much this other person was involved, but in I survived this person wasn't mentioned. In all my other sources they were, but I I don't know. But the this woman's 17-year-old son helped his mom tie Tika's hands up and hold her captive. He's also not mentioned again, so I'm very confused about his placement and involvement. I wonder if the only reason he came up in some sources and not all is... It definitely sounds like... I mean, he's a minor. He's, what, 17, you said? Yeah. It sounds like he was coerced by his mom to be involved in this and that he wasn't he wasn't like a true participant. He was just, you know, following his mom's orders kind of thing. Okay, that would make sense. But yeah, cuz I was I was a little confused at how much his involvement was, but yeah, if he's a minor, that would make sense of why there's not a ton of information and stuff on that. Yeah. That I mean, I would. Who knows if that's the, what really happened? But that would be my assumption. Yeah. Well, either way, Tika is now. Her hands are like tied up, and she's on this mattress on the floor. And eventually, the bleeding. Her bleeding stops. Like it slows and stops. 
But the woman also took Tika's cell phone and turned it off. And one thing I do want to mention, I know there are a lot of people that might be like, wait, she was homeless and in a shelter, but she had a cell phone. Cell phones aren't expensive, y'all. No, you can easily get one. I think we've talked about this before. It's really not a hard thing to get. It's not a hard thing to get. There are a lot of plans you can get for $30 a month. What kind of home situation can you get for that much? What kind of change? What is going to be something that brings a bigger amount of change in your life for that amount of money other than a cell phone that gives you access to communicating, being available? Someone, you need a callback number for a job application. You have one. You need the internet to be able to apply for jobs. You have it. Like, I don't know. I just hear too often of people acting like the privilege of cell phone is so high and it's like it is such an important resource at a point that is attainable to a lot of people no totally it's one of those things that yes if you want like the newest iphone and the plan with all the unlimited everything it can the price can get up there if you just need a phone to communicate it's it's really not expensive it's really not when and even shit, you can get the, like, last season or the season before's iPhone for, like, zero dollars on a basic plan. Like, but anyway, the woman takes Tika's phone, turns it off. So now Tika can't, I mean, she's fucking sliced open and bleeding and doesn't really have the energy to even call for help. Yeah. But now she really can't. And Tika's laying there thinking, like, what can I do? Like, what can I do to get myself out of here? She starts saying that if she just talks to the woman, it'll scare her into letting her go. So Tika starts talking to the woman about the woman's kids and family and also talking about her family and how she's not going to say anything because she does not believe in keeping people away from their families. She's like, look, Stephanie, even though I'm pretty sure that's not your real name, if you've let me go, I'm not saying anything. You're a mom, you have kids, you have family. I've been through so much and seen the damage that taking someone from their family can do. I'm not going to tell anyone. I don't want to put you through that. I don't want to take you away from your family in the like read between the lines is don't take me away from mine. Right. Please let me go. And the woman, she doesn't say anything. She just starts kind of pacing around the room but Tika can tell that her words are getting to her. That night, Tika lays awake most of it, and eventually she does fall asleep. But when she wakes up the next morning, the woman is just pacing the room again. And Tika asks her, she's like, why don't you just kill me? Why don't you just let this end? I am in so much pain. Just just kill me. And the woman's response, she's just like, I, I gotta find a way to get out of here. And so Tika's in her mind, she's like, okay. So she doesn't want to kill me. Now she just wants to leave. But the only thing that is keeping her here is me. I know what she looks like, where she lives, what her car looks like, and I know a lot about her. Fuck. What a scary realization. Like, how horrifying is that moment when she's like, oh shit, she wants to get out. I am the only thing holding her back from that. Yeah. It's like she doesn't want to kill me, but she wants to get out. 
how long is it going to take for her to kind of take the steps to, oh, I do need to kill her? Or even if she doesn't, what is she going to do? Is she just going to keep me here? And so three more nights she's held at this woman's apartment. Oh my god. So four nights total? Bleeding, like injured and just like laying there tied on a mattress. Yeah. Then the woman comes in with a big metal bowl. It's filled with ice. She also has a bunch of towels and rags. She also has two box cutters, a pair of scissors, and a knife. This is not looking good. Oh, shit. Then the woman grabs a roll of duct tape, and she starts wrapping it around Tika's face. Like, basically making a fucking... Mummy. Head mask. Yeah, mummy. On Tika's face. And Tika can now only breathe out of her nose. Oh, my God. And then the woman starts cutting. She starts cutting away just above Tika's pelvis, and Tika can feel everything. Again, at this point, Tika's hands are still tied. She's weak from blood loss. She can't move. She's like, basically, the only thing I could do is I could try to kind of like shift up, or like kind of try to sit up, but what's that going to do? What is that going to do except hurt me more? And I don't even think I can do that. I don't think I have the energy for that. So the woman is inside Tika's abdomen, cutting away. And she accidentally cuts Tika's bladder because she thinks it's the water sack, the amniotic fluid sack for the baby. Yeah. And she tells Tika that she already cut the water sack. So now all she has to do is reach in and get the baby. And she asks Tika... Do you want me to do that now, or do you want to go to sleep? It's weird because when Tika was explaining it, it almost sounded like this woman said that in like a caring voice. Like, do do you want me to get the baby now, or do you want to like sleep and not feel it? Like, I don't know. It's fucked up. Also, another another thing of Tika's humor is that during this. Uh, the woman turns on the Michael Jackson documentary, like, This Is It, This Is Us. I don't know. That's not, that's a different show. Um, and she was explaining how the woman, every time it would get to, like, a talking part, the woman would rewind it to back to the dancing and just watch it over and over for hours while she's cutting her open. And Tika's sitting there being like, and I fucking hate Michael Jackson. Like, we won't get into that. But I'm sitting there like, bitch, what are you doing? And I'm like, why is that where your mind is at? But also, where else is your mind going to go? I know. Because can you really focus on, she's cutting open my abdomen and my organs. But this took hours? Oh, yeah. Because she's, this woman's not like full on, like full arm slicing. I mean, she's trying to be surgical with this box cutter and slicing into her. And just prolonging this horrific experience. Yeah. And, I mean, when I say, like, she's cut open, she's, like, full-on organs exposed. Right. So when she asks Tika if she wants her to grab the baby now or go to sleep, Tika just tells her that she's in a lot of pain and if they could just take a break. Eventually, Tika passes out, but when she wakes up, the woman is laying on the floor next to her, 
in a fetal position, asleep. Oh my god, so she- oh my god! Yeah, she got like halfway through cutting her open, has sliced open her bladder, even. They took a break to watch a movie and the woman fell asleep. My face right now? (laughs) Oh my god! Yeah, you're kind of just sitting there, stunned silent. I am so speechless right now with this entire situation. Like, everything about it, I'm like, what the fuck? So, Tika's woken up. She's been, like, full-on eviscerated. This woman's asleep next to her, and Tika's laying there looking. She's like, okay, I would have to step over her to get out. And she's like, okay, I don't know if I have the strength, but I'm going to pull this strength and will from every part of me. And I'm going to try to get out of here because this is my chance. This is the only chance I have left. Also, next to her on the mattress is that metal bowl that the woman brought the ice in. Like, right next to her on the mattress. So Tika rolls over a little bit. And her ring hits the metal bowl. And she freezes. I would be so scared because I'm sure that was so loud. Yeah, she is looking at this woman laying right next to her on the floor being like, okay, what the fuck is she going to do? But the woman doesn't move. It doesn't wake her up. And so she musters all of the strength she has, and she stands up. She then moves to step over the woman, and the blood from her, like, open abdomen starts dripping. And again, Tika freezes. She has, like, one foot over the woman, one foot on the other side, and her blood is dripping onto her. Oh my god. But the woman again does not move. And so Tika's like, holy shit. Not only, like, I made a noise, I'm dripping blood on her. Holy shit, she's gonna wake up at any second. Wait, I thought she was tied. Did she get untied? No, her hands are still tied together. Oh, I thought she- oh, tied together. I thought she was tied to something. No, her hands are just, like, tied together. Gotcha. So Tika starts slowly making her way out of the bedroom and down the hall to the front door when all of her organs, her stomach, her intestines, her womb, everything fall out of her. Oh my god. I guess they were being held in just, it's like as she was moving, they were (laughs) jostling. Yeah. And they, they just fell out in the hallway. Yeah, I mean, I'm. it sounds like her wound is, like, almost hip-to-hip width. And basically, her abdomen fell out of her. Oh my god, what do you do in that moment? Just swoop your arms down and pick it up? That's what she did. What else do you do, you know? Yeah. Oh my god. With one hand, she picked up her organs to hold them. And with the other, she's steadying herself against the hall, or against the wall of the hallway, and she keeps walking to the door. This is literally the the fight for survival. Like, just, just think about that for a second. Your organs have fallen out of your body. You are still alive because they're still attached. And the only, only thing you can do is pick them up and keep going. That And she's nine months old. Pregnant. Yeah, pick them up and also one of them being your child. Yeah. 
If you could see the scene playing in my head right now, it is one of the most horrific things I've ever, ever thought about. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I don't think I can picture or have ever pictured something so horrifying and gruesome. I know what I'm picturing is not even like a percentage of the reality of it. Yeah. So Tika makes it to the door. And as slowly and quietly as she can, she starts unlocking all the locks on the door. The door creaks open, like makes a loud creak, but Tika is like, this is my opening. And she walks outside. She walks around to the back of the apartment building. And that is when she starts screaming for help. She is knocking on people's doors. She is going from apartment to apartment because nobody is answering. Oh my God. How can you knock on so many doors and no one's answering? No one answers. Eventually, she collapses on the stairs. The woman who attacked her woke up, comes out of her apartment, and finds Tika laying on the stairs. No, 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 no. This is not how this is supposed to go. The woman starts to drag Tika, and Tika starts fighting and kicking her and biting her fingers because she's like putting her hand over her mouth and Tika's like fuck you bitch I'll bite these off yeah suddenly this man runs down the stairs from the third floor and he's like what in the hell is like what is going on Uh, because he heard her screaming and heard this fight and he's like what the fuck and this woman starts talking over Tika, and she's like, oh, Tika, she's delusional. She's, I'm trying to help her. I'm sorry. Her guts are all literally out everywhere. He's not going to well, buy your bullshit. Well, he can't see all of the blood and her guts because it's dark, and she has a t-shirt that kind of covers her stomach, and it's a dark navy blue t-shirt. Oh, shit. So Tika looks at him and she's like, please help me. She's trying to kill me. And then she lifts up her shirt to show him. There you go. There's the guts. Yeah. He sees her organs and is like, oh, fuck. I am calling the cops. So he runs up to his apartment to call the police. And Tika is left there with the woman. So he was trying to help yet still left her. I mean, but what else can he do? What else do you do? I know. I know. If he doesn't have his phone on him, I mean, and it doesn't sound like it's necessarily in an area where there's like a bunch of apartments nearby that he could be like, hey, can someone else come out and make sure this crazy bitch doesn't like try to murder her or whatever? No. But I also don't think at this point he necessarily knows that this woman's lying. I think he's like, oh, fuck, this person's bleeding. I need to call the police. Maybe in his mind, he's like, oh, she's trying to help her. Well, yeah. I'm going to call the police any fucking way. Like, she needs an ambulance. Right. I don't know. The woman looks down at Tika. They're alone now, again. On the stairwell. The woman looks down at her. Yeah. She looks down at her, and she's like, she gives her this look that says, I knew I should have killed you. And then she runs off. Oh, my God. She leaves? She leaves. So Tika's there alone, bleeding on the apartment stairs. Until the emergency services, like, they finally get there. The firefighters, the ambulance people. EMTs, not ambulance (laughs) people. (laughs) The ambulance people. They're the AP. Mm -hmm. Um, Tika is rushed to the hospital and rushed into surgery. And when she wakes up, 
She's in her hospital room with her husband right next to her. Like, he's the first person she sees when she wakes up. And the first thing she asks is about her baby. Well, yeah. She, at this point, is like, well, I was holding him outside of my body in the womb. Is he okay? A nurse comes in to check on her and tells her that she gave birth to a healthy eight pound, two ounce baby girl. I'm so glad to hear that because I thought you were going to say the opposite. That's a strong baby. Yeah. I did not think that her baby would be able to survive all of this at all. I don't know how she survived all of this. I don't know how she survived. And like her survival is very much like, or, or the baby's survival is very much dependent upon her survival and also, I, I know this is a fair, like not a little part of it, but a part of it, I mean, her bladder being cut, I don't know why I assume that could mean like soon death because that's all these like toxins being like oh, it, in your it body. Does. Like some of the worst injuries a person can have are if your bladder is ruptured or if your colon is ruptured. Um, like I know it it's something I feel like a lot of people don't think about, but your colon or your lower small intestines getting ruptured, I think you have like a 60% chance of death. Yeah, no, because that is all the bad things or the things that your body can't use and is trying to get rid of being put back in your body, but not in the system like mouth to stomach to intestines as it should be. Mm -hmm. Like it's, no, it's waste. It's waste. It's instant It's instant infection on some of your most vital organs. Yes. So because of everything that the both of them were able to survive, Tika named her daughter Miracle because she fucking was a miracle. Damn right. Good name. The woman who attacked Tika, Veronica Daramaus, she turned herself in later that day. Good. Honestly, that's, that's good. I'm I'm glad she turned herself in because what she did was horrific. Oh, yeah. She pled guilty to assault and she received a 25-year prison sentence as part of her plea bargain. But due to the damage Tika sustained, she's not able to have any more kids. And she really wanted to have a big family. So that was really hard for her. Tika and her family now live in an apartment in still in Washington, D.C., And Tika says that she survived because she was coming to a point in her life where she had started to love herself, respect herself, and cherish life. So she survived. And so did Miracle. Isn't that a place we all want to aspire to? Yeah. So that is my case. That is the survival of Tika Adams and Miracle. That is a survival story for the books, man. Yeah. Also, can we just take a moment to talk about Veronica's sentencing? Because obviously, again, I'm not one that's sitting here thinking harshest punishments ever. But when you look at our cases side by side, there is very much definitely some inequality going on with the types of sentencing in comparison to the two. Oh yeah. I mean, the fact that Veronica was able to make a plea deal and plea guilty just to assault, not attempted murder and 
kidnapping and attempted kidnapping of Miracle and like all of that. She just got assault. And for everything she did, she got 25 years when Ian, a 13-year-old... Also took a plea deal. Yeah, also took a plea deal and got life without parole. Yeah. I... This is what frustrates me about our justice system. But, wow. Holy shit, Mm -hmm. this episode. Yeah. Yeah. These were two very different horrific levels of survival and both of ours actually had survival of two people. They did. So the, these were really intense. You were not exaggerating at all when you said that at the beginning. Yeah, I think, uh, and I I feel like I might say this every Survivor episode, but I feel like this is our most intense survival episode we've ever done. Yeah, I don't even really have words to 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 add to this because... I, I think it's all been said. I think it's all been said. Yeah. So I agree. If you want to hear more of Blood and Wine, if you're enjoying the cases that we're doing, the things that we're talking about, please hop on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Let us know what you're thinking. Leave us those five stars. We love reading what you say. Yes. Also, make sure to like and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We've got a website. We've got a merch store. Check them out. Like and follow us on social media. Um, on our Instagram and our Facebook, that's when you'll get pictures of all the wine bottles we're drinking. So if you if you hear one that you're like, ooh, that sounds great. What's it look like? Or however many times we're like, oh my god, this bottle's so pretty. It's amazing. And you're like, okay, but what does it look like? You can see it. Head over to Instagram. See it right there. But with that... This is Blooded Wine, signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.